I just want to read a few verses out of a familiar passage of scripture and a familiar couple of stories this morning, but I think God has something um, good to say to us. When Jesus returned, I'm reading out of Luke, the eighth chapter. I'm just going to skip through a few verses, starting at verse number 40, and um, they'll put it on the screen, but I'm reading out of the Passion Translation, so if it sounds a little different, that's why. When Jesus returned to Galilee, the crowds were overjoyed, for they had been waiting for him to arrive. Just then, a man named Jairus, the leader of the local Jewish congregation, fell before Jesus' feet, and he desperately begged him to come and heal his 12-year-old daughter, his only child, because she was at the point of death. Jesus started to go with him to his home to see her, but a large crowd surrounded him. Skip down to verse number 49. While Jesus was still speaking to the woman, someone came from Jairus' house and told him, there's no need to bother the master any further. Your daughter has died. She's passed away. She's gone. When Jesus heard this, he said, Jairus, listen to this lady, Jairus, don't yield to your fear. Have faith in me and she will live again. Skip down to verse number 54, Jesus approached the body, took the girl by the hand, called out in a loud voice, my sleeping child, awake, rise up. Jesus has been on a little bit of a roll when we get to this story in the Bible. He's, if you go back and read Luke 6 and Luke 7, he's been, um, he's raised a, a woman's son from the dead. He's told parables about seeds. He's um, delivered women from demons. He, he's been on a bit of a roll. So the word has spread throughout the community that Jesus has the power to heal. If Jesus comes and prays for you, he has the power to heal. So when he arrives on the shore, Jairus comes to him, who Jairus, as you heard me read in the scripture, he is a, a leader, he is the leader of the local synagogue. So he's quite well known. Everybody knows who he is. It's a very prominent place in the community. And so people know who he is. And so he comes to Jesus and he's desperate. He's desperate. We've all been there where we're desperate. We pray those kind of desperate prayers. He comes to Jesus and he's desperate. And, and a couple translations say he absolutely falls on his knees and grabs hold of Jesus and begs him to come and please come heal my daughter. And so Jesus says to him very easily, okay, Jairus, let's go. And they start on their way. The story of Jairus and, and his daughter being healed is kind of wrapped around in sandwich. It's like bookends on another story that we're all very familiar with. Um, the woman with the issue of blood. Because one, when Jairus takes off with Jesus and heads, the crowd is surrounding them. But imagine, if we can, for just a moment, when Jairus reaches Jesus and he begs him and Jesus says, yes, let's go to your house. The expectation and the anticipation that must have, you know, come into his heart and arisen in his heart because Jesus had said yes to him. And so on their way there, there's a small interruption 
And Jesus is surrounded by this throng of people, and he stops, and he suddenly says, who touched me? You know the story, right, ladies? Who touched me? And so there's this woman who the story tells us for 12 long years has had an issue, an issue of blood, it says. So she's, she's been physically drained, and it's cost her not only physically, it's cost her financially, it's cost her relationship-wise, it's cost her everything. Now let's just pause for a minute and remind ourselves that how old is Jairus' daughter? She's 12. How long has this woman had an issue? For 12 years. So at the same, in the same period of time, for 12 years in one house, a life has been born, a life has been growing, joy has been happening, everything that comes with having a child in your house has been happening. Life um, increase has been happening, growth has been happening, learning has been happening. For 12 years, that's what's happening in Jairus' house. But at the same, at the same period of time, in another place, in another house, the exact opposite is happening. Rather than life happening, death seems like it's coming. Dying is happening. Loss is happening. She's losing everything. She's losing her social status. No doubt during those 12 years, why Jairus's, after Jairus' daughter was born, no doubt during those 12 years, his career was soaring. Things were looking up for them until this moment when all of a sudden the scripture says that his daughter became ill and she was dying. And so the two, though they have had different experiences for those 12 years, are actually at the same point now in the story. But the woman who has the issue of blood, though she was bold and courageous in her own way, wasn't the same kind of bold and courageous that Jairus was. Because Jairus is coming from a place of confidence. He's coming from a place of prominence. He's coming from a place where life has been good up to this point. I have no reason to hide my face. I have no reason to be socially um, shunned. People actually think I'm kind of a big deal because of who I am. And so in his moment of desperation, his response to that is, I'm going to walk up straight to the person that I know has the ability to fix this, look him in the eye, get on my knees and beg him, come heal my daughter. While the other woman who for 12 years has been dealing with her issue has been shunned and scorned by her community and considered unclean and is not technically even supposed to be out in the street. So she is coming to Jesus in a whole different way. She's coming to Jesus crawling. She had to be low on the ground trying to, trying to sneak through and not be noticed by the people that were surrounding Jesus just so she could touch him. Because she just had this belief that I don't have to have a face encounter with him, but if I can just touch him, I'll get healed. So the thing is that though Jairus' difference, though there's a difference between the way that they approach Jesus, their request is exactly the same. Hers is done a little bit more on the sly. His is done very openly. Because no doubt when he came walking into the situation, Jairus I'm talking about, and approached Jesus, other people saw him. Other people recognized him. Other people saw him ask Jesus 
for this, for this thing, for Jesus to come and heal. So two different people, same request, arriving at Jesus in different ways. Jairus very publicly, woman with the issue of blood, very quietly. And so Jairus thinks, I've got the upper hand here. I'm not saying he was thinking arrogantly or anything like that. He just thinks my request has been answered. And so they start walking towards, and all of a sudden, Jesus stops. Jairus has no idea why Jesus has stopped. But he stops, and he says, wait a second, somebody touched me. Who touched me? And I can only imagine how Jairus must have felt. Jesus' disciples say to him, Jesus, everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? And Jesus said, no, it wasn't just any kind of a touch. It was a special kind of a touch. I felt something leave, something be, be withdrawn from me. And so imagine how Jairus must have felt in that moment. Jesus, what are you talking about? If that was me, if I was him, I'd be like, everybody's touching you. Come on, let's keep moving. My daughter's dying. But Jesus doesn't. He stops. And Jairus is just left standing there while Jesus tries to figure out the situation. And he takes time, as you know the rest of the story, you know her story, that he takes time to heal the woman and to speak life back into her and encouragement into her. All the while, Jairus is standing there tapping his foot because she's getting what he has already very publicly requested. She's getting her healing and he's waiting because he has requested the same thing that Jesus has paused to give to someone else, right? So in the middle of all of that, Jesus heals this woman. He's spending time with her one-on-one, face-to-face, encouraging her, speaking life into her. And while that's happening, you heard me read the story, his serv- a servant from Jairus' house comes and says, never mind, it's too late, your daughter is already dead. Now, I don't know about you, I try to when I'm reading these stories, because these are real stories. This is a real story with real people, real lives, real father, real daughter. And I try to put myself in that situation and ask myself, how would I feel about that? I very publicly ask you, God, for this thing. Jesus, I came to you face to face and asked you for this one thing. And you stopped to heal this woman who actually wasn't even supposed to be out in the street, making everybody else unclean. Because remember, he was leader of the synagogue, so his whole perspective is going to be a little more legalistic. But you, you've stopped and you've paused with this woman to give her exactly what I asked for. And now, while you were dealing with her and giving her what I asked for, my daughter died. The level of disappointment that must have come over him and his response to it. I mean, clearly Jesus said to him, Jairus, don't let fear get a hold of you. But can you imagine the disappointment that he must felt in that moment? The feeling of, I thought I got here in time. I thought I had got Jesus' attention. I thought he was heading to my house. And this woman stepped in and took what I had already asked for. Can you imagine the level of disappointment that he must felt? 
I've been there, ladies. I don't know if you have. I have absolutely been there where I have stood and watched someone else receive. How many of you have been there? Stood and watched someone else receive what you had very publicly asked God for. Somebody that if we judge by our own standards, we wouldn't think deserved it. Somebody that we wouldn't think they shouldn't even have been here in the mix in the, in the first place. Why would you stop and deal with that when I ask first? Like God keeps, like God keeps record like that. Like I, I remember when our kids were young and they would fight over who was gonna get to sit in the front seat of the car. And it always turned into this massive, like when it was time to go race to the front seat of the car and whoever they felt like touched the car first, that's who they thought got to sit in the front seat of the car. And it turned, it always turned into this, you know, big, huge sibling spat while I'm just trying to get everybody in the car so we could get someplace sometime over. I was here first. Mom, tell him I was here first. I don't know why he always thinks. And it turned into that kind of a thing because if we think something is ours, if we think we've earned something, if we think that I asked God first, how come he stopped to do her, how come he stopped to heal her? I ask God, if we think that we deserve something first, there's great disappointment that follows that. Because oftentimes, if I would say to our kids, you know what, I don't care who got here first, Stephen, you get to sit in the front, Meredith, you get into back, get in the back seat, there would be, it would be followed by, I don't know why, you, you always do that. Then it turned into, you're showing him favoritism, and you, there, there was always an attitude that came with it. The only reason that we experience disappointment is because we believe to begin with that we are appointed to receive something. The very word disappointment means, if you break it down, the word dis means apart or away from, separated from. And the word appoint means appointment. So disappointment, if I go to the doctor's office and I make an appointment, there is an expectation and an assumption that when I get there, that time frame has been appointed to me. So if you come in and go, you know what, Um, I want to go have coffee with my girlfriend, so I'm going to take your appointment. Guess what? I'm going to have something to say about that. Because I made the appointment. You want to see the worst of humanity sometimes? Get on an airplane. (laughs) Hang out in airports. Travel quite a bit. I was recently on an airplane because occasionally when people get on planes, they, they sit in the wrong seat. And for whatever reason, people get so crazy bizarre about seat assignments on an airplane. And... I mean, I prefer a window seat as well. I really do. I might would fight you over a center seat if I wasn't assigned to it. (laughs) But if somebody sits or somebody asks when I get on a plane, if I'm sitting in a window seat and they get on and they say, hey, I'm traveling with my wife and kids. Do you mind, you know, they're seated seated here. Do you mind trading seats with me? Most of the time I'll do that. Just because, you know, if I'm traveling with my family, I'd like to sit close to them too on the airplane. So most of the time I'll do that. But recently I was on an airplane and um, 
we, I was thinking as we travel a lot so we get to be a part of the pre-boarding process, which means we're first on the plane. So I watched somebody come in and they sat down and they actually sat down in the wrong row. Of course, I don't know this at the time, but they sat down in the wrong row. So when the person, and sat down in a seat, so when the person who was assigned to that seat got on the plane, um, they, they said to the person, um, you're, you're in my seat. And first of all, there's a way to say that, that's okay. And there's a way to say that, that's not okay. When you come straight out the gate with a whole boatload of attitude, you're, you're most likely not going to get, you know, a kind response back. So person said, hey, you're in my seat, kind of a thing. Well, unfortunately, the person who was seated in that seat said, no, I'm not. This is my seat, and went on. And the two of them actually got in an argument over an airplane seat. And the rest of us are sitting on the plane watching this scenario unfold until finally, of course, a flight attendant has to come and break it up like they're fourth graders on the playground and has to come and break it up and, and help the person who was sitting in the wrong seat to realize you're in the wrong row. You thought you were in 4B and, and you are in 4B, but you're actually sitting in row three. But the whole scenario started because when they give you a seat assignment, you believe you are appointed to that space. So when we feel like we have an appointment with something, then we'll get pretty indignant if somebody tries to take what we feel like was ours away. Because what happens is we often have two things at work when it comes to disappointment. We have expectation and assumption. Expectation is the belief that something that is coming is mine. Expectation is the belief that something that is about to happen or to be achieved, that I'm supposed to receive that. That's the expectation. So expectation is forward focused. It's looking forward and saying, and it's not necessarily bad if expectations are appropriate and realistic and all of that, but expectation is forward focused and it's saying, I think I'm supposed to receive that thing right there. That's where Jay Iris was at. He'd had this face-to-face conversation. He's a, a leading ruler in the city. And so he, he has had an answer from Jesus and no doubt, when, Jay, when you dealt with Jairus because of the level of leadership that he was at, that his word meant something. And when he spoke with you and you said something to him, your word should mean something to him. Because when you are a high level leader, your word means something. And so he had an expectation, just like you and I do, that when we come to God, because our expectation is based in what we already know about God, it's based in our previous experiences that we've had with God, but expectation is forward-focused. Expectation says, I know this about God, I've experienced this about with God, I've actually watched him do this same sort of thing with other people that I know, I've been privy to their testimony, privy to their experience, and so when I bring my request to God, there's an expectation that comes with that, that because he's done it before, and because he did it for them, he's absolutely going to do it for me. The other 
thing that, that goes along with that is assumption. And you and I both know what the big phrase is about when we assume a thing. We make a out of you and me. <laughs> so we know assumption also is based in our previous experiences, it's based in our previous knowledge base. We don't usually make assumptions out of thin air. We make assumptions based in something. But assumptions are past focused because assumptions are what we bring to the moment based on what has happened in the past. Expectation is based in what we know about God, but it's telling us what we can expect in the, in the future. So assumption is that because Jesus had healed before, that he will heal again. But assumption also says that because Jesus healed that way before, because just the previous chapter, in chapter number seven of Luke, there was a woman who brought her son who had already died and was dead, and she asked Jesus to raise him from the dead, and he raised him from the dead and said, woman, here's your son. So there was the assumption that if Jesus did it that quickly without interruption when she requested it, no doubt that spread through Jairus was the ruler in the synagogue. You think he didn't hear that? There is a grapevine that goes among pastors and leaders that we hear all of the good things and the bad things, sadly, that go on in the church because we all talk to each other about what God is doing in churches. And so if you don't think Jairus had heard that story, I know I'm making an assumption here, but I'm, I'm guessing he's probably heard that story. He's heard something or he would not have come with that request to Jesus. So just because Jesus did it one way previously, we cannot assume that he will do it the same way when we request him. But disappointment puts us in a place where we have a decision to make. Because Jesus said to Jairus, Jairus, don't let your fear overtake you. Because when disappointment happens, when you tell me, when I have a belief, an expectation, and an assumption that's founded in, in truth, if I have an expectation and an assumption that when I make a request to God that he's going to do that thing for me, then I also oftentimes have, as we have heard uh, probably two or three times, we heard it last night, we heard it twice yesterday, that we have an assumption that God is going to do it in the way that we pictured it and the timeline that we pictured it on. And that it's, not, I mean, because remember when Jairus came, his daughter was not yet dead. So no doubt in his mind, he's already thinking when his servant comes and says, never mind, she's already dead. I don't know about you, but the first thought that would have been gone through my mind is if you had not stopped here, we would not be in this position right now. She wasn't dead yet. Now we're dealing with dead. Before we were just dealing with sick. So I have to believe J. Iris was experiencing some level of disappointment. Some level, because Jesus says to him, Jairus, don't let your fear get the best of you. Because along with our assumptions and along with our expectations, we define things by what we know. 
by what we expect, by what we have assumed. And so when the servant comes and says to him, never mind, it's too late, she's already dead. They have made that call, they have made that assumption based on what they think they know. But Jesus looks at that and he says, Jairus, don't let your fear get the best of you. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. Now, let's be real here. If the girl is not breathing, by natural standards, she's dead. And that's the only thing, based in our natural understanding, that's the only way we know how to define that situation, that picture. Because we would look at that, and if someone is not breathing and not moving, what else would we call that? We wouldn't say, from a natural perspective, we wouldn't say she's sleeping, we would say she's dead. So I'm not faulting these people for seeing it that way, but their perspective was wrong. Because here's the great thing, is when Jairus came to Jesus and he said to him face to face, I need you to come to my house. My daughter is gravely ill and she's dying. Please come and heal her. When Jesus said yes, his words mean something. So no matter if the circumstances change between the point of that yes and the point of his arrival, we heard it yesterday and last night when we talked about Lazarus, even if those circumstances change between the point of his yes and the point of his arrival to the situation, the yes has not changed because his words mean something. So too often we're judging circumstances around us, ladies. We are judging the circumstances around us based on our natural understanding of the circumstance. Not understanding that if Jesus said that he's a healer, which he did say, if Jesus said that he's a way maker, a door opener, a provider for us, then that word never changed because when God speaks, when Jesus speaks, when God speaks, he speaks with intention and he's not a man that he can lie so his words mean something and too often we are so focused so focused so focused on our hurt on our need on the circumstance on the situation that because the situation has changed because God has not done it in the way that we thought he was going to do it Somehow or another, we let fear come in because when disappointment comes in, anger usually comes in with it. That's why those people were fussing with each other over a stupid seat on an airplane. Pride gets in the way of it. Jairus could have got all puffed up with pride and said, how dare you stop to deal with this woman? Don't you know who I am? These are all potentials when we feel like we were appointed for something. When we know that God said, this is what I have for you, I'm appointing this thing to you. When God says that is for us, but the timeline doesn't work out, if we allow ourselves to be disappointed, removed from the appointment that God has set for us, then we also allow or open ourselves up for fear and anger and bitterness and all the things that go along with disappointment. It changes your perspective. It changes the way you see a thing. But if you stick with the fact that Jairus said, I looked you face to face, eye to eye, and you said you were coming to heal my daughter. 
So it doesn't matter if you stop to deal with this other woman. It doesn't matter if the delay happened. It doesn't matter if they came and told me that she's no longer just sick, she's died. You said you were coming to my house. And that's where his focus should have been. And we know he must have pulled himself together because when Jesus finished with the woman with the issue of blood, he looked at Jairus and said, don't let fear grip you. She's not dead. She's only sleeping. Remember what I said. I said, I'm coming to your house. And it's interesting to me that when they get to the house, that all the people around Jairus's world are all weeping and wailing and crying. Not one of them has said, not one reasonable voice, faith-filled voice in the crowd has said, wait a second, Jesus is still coming. Not one of them has said that. They have all said, she's dead, she's dead. And when Jesus said, all of y'all, stop all your whining. Stop all your crying. Cut it out. She's not dead. She's sleeping. They laughed at him. But funny to me is I know how I am. I know my personality. I'm 56 years old. Lisa Harper told you all that way too many times. But the truth hurts. (laughs) For some reason, you know, when you're 54, you think, that's not bad. 55, that's not bad. 56, ooh. Now we're on the other side of closer to 60 than closer to 50. Anyway, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now. But anyway, what I'm saying is I'm 56 years old. I know myself well enough to know that if, if you come to me and say to me, um... Stop all your craziness. Stop all your foolishness. Stop acting like that. Um, She's not dead. She's just sleeping. If I don't have the right perspective, I'm going to push back on that a bit. And so I'm I'm saying that because I feel like I want to go a little easy on the crowd who were crying and the crowd who were wailing because they didn't have the right perspective and they didn't understand. They probably were, were not eyewitnesses of the conversation that happened between J. Iris and Jesus. So they don't know what J. Iris knows. So they're responding how naturally people would respond. But Jesus is not moved by any of that. As a matter of fact, I actually really like this part of the story. It's probably my favorite part next to the part where it actually raises her from the dead. But my favorite part of this is because Jesus, my, my, my natural tendency of I'm Jesus would be to stop and try to explain the situation to these people and say, like, I know y'all are acting crazy right now, but here's what you need to understand. I had a conversation with Jairus and I just, but Jesus does not even stop to do that. He doesn't even care. He just kind of rolls his eyes and looks at him and he and his disciples go into the room. And as I read in the story, he looks at her and he says, daughter, wake up. And it says immediately she got up immediately she got up. There was no pause. Jesus didn't feel the need to explain himself. He didn't feel the need to try to calm the crowd. He didn't feel the need to try to do anything because Jesus was like, I know what I said I was going to do. And I know you don't like it. You know, our kid, I love to use our kids as examples, especially because they're grown now and they just love it when I do this. But there were often times when, you know, when you're raising your kids that you say to your kids, yes, we're going to do such and such. 
but they don't like the timeline of what you're getting ready to do. And so they keep coming back and they keep saying, when are we gonna, when are we gonna? And you just say, just chill. I told you we were gonna do that and we're gonna get to it. And I picture that's kind of the attitude that Jesus had. He said, I told you I was gonna do this and I'm gonna get to it. I'm gonna get to it. I had this other situation. She needed healed too. She's been dealing with her issue for 12 years while you've been enjoying your daughter's life up to this point, this woman has been suffering. So I know you think your situation is priority. And I know you think your situation should take precedence because you got here first, but really, come on, man. She's been suffering for 12 years. And the woman had the courage to come out of her house when she shouldn't have come out of her house. I've got to stop and deal with this. So Jesus gets there. He goes into the room. He ignores the people completely, goes into the room, says, daughter, wake up, rise up. And immediately, immediately, it says her spirit returned to her and she, and she stood up. How many of us ladies have allowed things that are only sleeping but we've called them dead because we've allowed disappointment to be our focus, to be our perspective. And we've allowed those things to lay there dead and dormant. And some of them are sinking. But Jesus is actually saying, it's not dead. It's only sleeping. But you have lost focus of the fact that, yes, I did appoint that thing for you. I just didn't appoint it for you at this particular time. And too often, it's not that God didn't appoint it for us. He didn't appoint it for us in this season. He didn't appoint it for us in this moment. But because we're all control freaks, all of us, every female on the planet has some molecule of control freak on the inside of her. And we like to fix things. And we like to nurture things. And we like to get things done. Um, most of us, most of us have some kind of to-do list check, checking through or clicking through our heads at all times. Now, some of our to-do lists are very neat and organized and put on an Excel spreadsheet, and some of our to-do lists are written on the back of a receipt crammed in the bottom of our purse. And I, but I promise, some of our purses, if we look inside of our purses, are several little bags that are all neatly organized, and some of them look like something has exploded on the inside of it. But all of us, no matter how you manage that to-do list, all of us, have a to-do list going on in our heads. And we like to treat the appointments that God has for us, the things that he said he was going to do for us. We like to treat them like we can just add them to the checklist and tomorrow at 12 p.m. I have an appointment for God to take care of this financial situation, for God to heal this marriage, for God to restore this relationship between my child and me, for God to open that door for that employment opportunity, for God to fix this business situation that I have, for God to heal my body. We think that we can put our appointment with God on a checklist somehow and he's going to follow my checklist 
And when, I mean, a good day for me, a really good day for me, is when I've had lots of coffee and chocolate and a completed checklist. That's a good day for me. When I get up in the morning and I have a list of 10 things to do, if I go to bed at night and all 10 of those things are checked off my checklist, I am such a happy camper. And if you add another cup of coffee and a piece of chocolate with that, what else do I need? So it doesn't suit me well. It doesn't feel right to me when I've had a list of 10 things on my checklist and I go to bed and only eight of them got done. Because now I realize I already have a list of 10 things for tomorrow. Now I've got to move these two things from today onto that list. Is this making sense to you guys? And we like to throw our appointments with God into our natural, I got to go to the grocery store and pick up dry cleaning and don't forget to drop the kids off and I got to get that dance uniform and I got to take the dog to the groomer and oh, that's right, my husband asked me to stop and and I've got to kill a mouse under the sink and we like to throw our appointments with God into that checklist and you cannot throw your appointment with God into that checklist. But I guarantee you this this morning, this is all I came to say to us this morning, I guarantee you this, if you have stood and faced God and asked him for something, or if you, like the woman with the issue of blood, were exhausted and, and, and have felt like you had lost everything and you crawled your way to Jesus and you touched the hem of his garment, I don't care how the request was made, When the time is right, when the appointment is set with him, he will come and he will answer. He will. And those things that you have now called dead, you have called them dead because you thought the appointment came and went. Nobody likes to miss an appointment. Nobody likes to be stood up in an appointment. I don't like it if you say to me, hey, let's meet for coffee on such and such a day, and a half hour after we're supposed to meet, I'm still sitting at the coffee shop. I'm now on my third cup of coffee, which is way more than I should have, because you're late or because you forgot. Nobody likes to be on that side of a missed appointment, and nobody likes to be on the other side of it where we felt like we had an appointment and somebody else come in and took, came in and took our appointment. But if God said that he was going to do it for you, if you made your request to him, the appointment has been set. The appointment has been set. You're the only one who can cancel it. He will not cancel his appointment with you. But If you allow disappointment, if you allow yourself to be separated from what God said was appointed for you, I'm driving this point home, then you are the one who has canceled the appointment, not him. I ask myself often when I read stories like Jairus, when I read stories like Bartimaeus, when I read stories about Lazarus and times, I often ask myself, what if those people in this story had responded differently? What if Jairus had said to Jesus, you know what, never mind. 
I came, I asked you, you ignored me, you took time with this person over here. Never mind, don't even come to my house. What would have happened? You and I both know what would have happened. He would have missed the appointment that Jesus had set with him. And he would have been burying his daughter. But clearly, Jairus did not. Clearly, he heard Jesus when he said, don't let your fear get the best of you. Because he said, okay, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving towards my house. And ladies, I just came to say to us this morning, don't miss your appointment. Don't miss your appointment. I'm a very, very deep sleeper. Like, I'm the person that if I had been in the boat with Jesus and the disciples during the storm, I would have been in the bottom of the boat sleeping with him, not even knowing things. Storms come through. I sleep through them. Trees are falling over in our backyard. My husband's like, can't you hear that? I'm like, nope. (laughs) So much, so much so that I remember when I was pregnant with Meredith asking my mom, how will I ever hear her? Because I know I'm a deep sleeper. When I set my alarm, it's that loud, obnoxious on my phone now. It's that loud, obnoxious, and it's really loud. You know how they have that nice little sleep thing on iPhones now where you can set it, and it kind of goes beep, 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 and it just gradually gets louder? That would never wake me up. Not in a million years. But I remember saying to my mom when I was pregnant with Meredith, how will I ever hear How will I ever hear her? Because you know me. I'm such a deep sleeper. I'm the kid that you're banging, but mostly my dad would be banging on my door like, get up. And I did the same thing to my own kids. So much so that I got one of those air horn, fog horn things. (laughs) Not so much for you, but for the other one, right? (laughs) And I would just crack open Stephen's door and go, eh. to wake him up. That's cruel and unusual punishment. I don't know. (laughs) Take that if you want for parenting advice. Do what you want to do with it. (laughs) Sometimes we get desperate. But I was such a deep sleeper that I said to my mother, how will I ever hear her? How will I ever hear her when she cries because I sleep so deeply? And my lovely sweet mother said, oh, you'll hear her. And I was like, but I don't know that I will. And she said, Kathy, something happens on the inside of you when, um, when you become a mother and everything in you becomes alert and aware of her calls, of her cries. And ladies, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is not a deep sleeper. He's not a deep sleeper. He heard your cry. He heard your call. And he has an appointment with you. Don't let yourself get disappointed. Don't let yourself get pulled apart from the appointment that he has for you. Trust that his word is true. 
trust that his word is faithful. When God speaks, he speaks with intention. He speaks with purpose. God does not speak like you and I speak. When we get together with our girlfriends and we're all sitting at a table having enjoying dinner together and there's five different conversations going on all at the same time and you are participating in three of those five conversations at the table, we're not most likely talking about anything that is life-altering or life-changing. It's usually about sales and shoes and kids and diapers and all sorts and menopause and all sorts of crazy things. So it's not oftentimes life-altering things. It's just us having casual conversation with each other. And God, yes, sometimes he comes and he has casual conversation with us, but most of the time when God speaks, actually not most of the time, all of the time, because even in our casual conversations, God is intentional. When God speaks, he means what he says. He means what he says. So if you read in scripture that he will supply all your needs, he meant it when he said it. And that applies to you. And so if you're facing a financial difficulty right now and you wish that God would have come through last month or the month before, don't allow yourself to become disappointed. You have been appointed for your need to be met. And so stay connected to the appointment that God has for you. And understand that his timing is not your timing. Awake, O oh daughter. Rise up and immediately listen for his call. Listen for his call to you because there's a response. When he said to the sleeping child, wake up, daughter, she had a response to that. She woke up. She got up. She stood up. So when God speaks, listen for his call. And when he calls, respond to it. Don't be disappointed today. Don't be disappointed. Today is our wake-up call. Our wake-up call to not lose our appointment, to not lose what God has said was ours, but to hold on to it with all we have. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, I thank you that you are a good, good father, that you have prepared for us, that you have purposed for things to come to our lives in the timing that you know is best for us. And so today, God, we choose to stick with the appointment that you have set for us, to not allow ourselves to become disappointed, to not be moved by the circumstances around us, to not be moved by the fact that someone else is receiving what we've already asked you for. But God, to know that you have appointed a time and a place for us. And we refuse to allow fear or anger or control or anything else to separate us from what you have appointed for us. And I declare that the wake-up call of Christ is coming into the ears of your daughters today. That when you speak, that they will hear and that they will respond to what you have to say and to your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.